Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there. Welcome to the Victor Davis Hansen Show. Victor is a scholar, columnist, essayist, political and cultural commentator, and the unwitting provocateur of the left. Welcome to his show. He is also the, and more importantly, I think, the, or I don't know, this is more important, but he is also the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. I am Sammy Wink, and today I have a little bit of a uh, cold or some bronchitis Ooh, you left have over the California from a, flu. I got it. I, yeah, it's left over from it's a not flu, the California, it's here. a southwestern flu. It was early this year. Yeah, it sure hit me for a good week. So I'm just coming back and I it's not so bad. So Victor, I understand you had it and you I seem did. to be was, all the way recovered. I had almost strangled long COVID and then it came out of the crypt in a new zombie form of a flu. And I tried to ignore it for a week. It was a weird, very weird thing. It wasn't a bad one. It just, I got really bad sinus bronchitis, sort of sounds like you. And then all of a sudden it went away and I thought I strangled this bastard. And then three or four days later, I kept working and it came back. And now yeah. it's been two weeks. And my voice sounds a little, it's the same thing, but it was a two week thing. And I I think I have that conspiracy theory that we all stayed in for two years and uh, we didn't have interaction with people. And the result of it is our immune system became a little sluggish. We weren't exposed to colds and flus. And now I think this year is going to be pretty bad. All right. I, I hope bet you did. I bet you didn't. I get, hope I didn't, you're not. Oh, go ahead. You didn't get a flu shot. I didn't either. I got the senior no. flu shot three years ago and I had. A really bad reaction, low blood count and everything. But so I, I kind of tough it. And I, I got the flu right after the shot. So I decided to pass it up the last two years. Did you get one? Um, no, I haven't received a Ooh. flu shot. I You generally don't get them, but I don't want to. Your audience should. Don't. You're not going to be anti Once I, once I um, find that I think I need it, it, because right now my health in general, I can fight off a of flu pretty well, but. You know, it's starting to get dicey, so I might start getting the flu shot. Yeah, I was going to get it, but <laughs> the last time I got it, right before um, the COVID hit, I got the flu right afterwards. And I called a friend as a doctor, and he said, when you get a vaccination, often some people get a lower white blood count for a couple of times at the very time they think they have refined or superior immunity. So they go out and meet people, but they should, if they get a flu shot, I think it thinks the same principle applies to COVID boosters. You yeah. might want to take the first 10 days and watch out. Yeah, Your absolutely. Recover. Anyway. Well, Victor, let's um, take a moment for some messages and come right back and talk a little bit about current news events. We'll be right back.
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. And Victor, I wanted to start off with our youth and some cases that are impacting the young adults. Um, a case, and then also uh, uh, an article I recently read. In fact, let's go with that first on young voters um, are not coming out as the Democrats expected. And in a particular article they that from N- MSN, they said that they thought that this was because Trump wasn't on the ballot. And so the anti-Trump incentive was not there for these youth. And I was wondering um, both what you think about that in particular, but also just about our, our young adults and the culture that we're seeing today. Um, I, I, I feel like politics is becoming very distasteful to the young adults that I encounter, but um, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I got to be careful about the youth. The lyric poet Horace, I'm just remembering, wrote, in, I think it was book three of the Odes. He wrote a couple of Odes. And we had that famous line that we, a generation worse than our parents, are bringing forth a generation worse than we are. And so we all criticize the youth. But I must say that they suffered in education. The last 15 years, it has been totally inadequate and bankrupt. And so they don't have a general knowledge. They're they're lacking two things. They're not inductive. So they're deductive. They start with a premise and then they make examples fit that premise, whether it's global warming or critical waste theory or whatever. That's number one. And then they don't have reference. So if I say to anybody under the age of 25, what's an ionic column? No idea. Who's Leonardo da Vinci? No idea. What's the capital California, no idea, it's Sacramento. So they don't, so what you start with that premise, they're not as informed as prior generation. And the second thing you start with is the $1.7 trillion in debt, which was culpable, I think, for the university when they jacked up the rate of tuition higher than the rate of inflation each year. And they were therapeutic and they didn't care about the people graduating's uh, their job opportunities, we have a generation of prolonged adolescence, which is what Tocqueville warned us about. They don't get married young. They don't have children. They don't buy homes. And when you add it as a force multiplier of the economy, that it's not it's not growing in the way that it did in the 60s, that it's, for young people, it's diminished horizons. And what they react to it is they either stay home or they don't or can't invest in housing and things, but they do manage to spend a great deal of money on sneakers or entertainment or video games. So 
it's a lost generation is sort of like the generation between world war one and world war two which was better educated but nevertheless um and then you so there's a general problem there and then specifically why they don't turn out your point or your suggestion that they don't have donald trump to vote against that's true in any midterm you usually have midterms that are diminished in turnout because the presidential figures for each of the opposite party are polarizing and I know a lot of young Republicans didn't vote in some midterms, even though they did well, because they wanted to vote against Barack Obama and he wasn't on the ballot. And so the thing was Trump was they're not they're not coming out as much. But then more importantly, third and lastly, if you're a young person, 21 or 22, and you've been told that the most existential questions in your life are whether you can terminate an abortion in month eight or month nine or whether you can keep smoking dope without worrying about being arrested if you've got a pound in your trunk or the planet's going to be doomed in 50 years so you shouldn't marry or have children until you are galvanized for, to address global warming whatever those talking points are that they keep concentrating on or we're inherently a racist country and we have to have radical repertory action and then you go Keep that in mind. That's what you're told. And then you go to fill up gas in California, you're paying $640 a gallon. Or you want to go buy a car, you're going to pay 9% on a car loan now. Or if you're going to buy a home, if you have the money, you're going to pay 7%. Or you go to the store to buy something and it's out of sight. Yesterday's groceries two years ago were, you know, $100. And this, this time they're $150. My favorite is dog food. Canned dog food used to be a dollar eight, and now it's two dollars. So, what are you going to do? Are you going to get galvanized to go out and vote for climate change and abortion on demand in every state? I don't think so. I think you're going to say, you know what? I can't live. And a lot of young hipsters and yuppies and metrosexuals live in big cities. That was kind of the end thing to go back to San Francisco from Silicon Valley. If you're in rural Michigan, get to the new renaissance, you know, in Ann Arbor or Detroit, or if you're in Chicago, it's, it's a new horizon, or Giuliani and Bloomberg's New York is a place to be. That's not true anymore. It's a dangerous place to be if you're a young person. And so we see that a lot of this, this young cult of things um, based on crime-free life, inexpensive goods, affordable fuels, rents that are tolerable, that's gone. And so what do you do if you're a young person? You're not well informed. I, I think you do one of two things, Sammy. You either just say, now pass. I'm too tired. I'm too lazy. I'm not going to vote. No big deal. Or you might even say to all your friends, I voted for, you know, I voted for, you know, Whoever they right. expect yeah, I'm you in to Ohio. Vote. I live in Columbus. I'm a student. I voted for Ryan. Of course I did. But then maybe a little higher than normal voted for for J.D. Vance. So you got. I think something's going on there. And they, of course, they need this vote, this youth vote, just like they need the black vote and they need the Hispanic vote and they need the independent voter because, you know, 65 to 70 percent of the the country is white middle class and they have yeah. lost that completely they're only getting about 40 percent of that of yeah. that rubric and to make up for it they need extra extraordinary percentages 
And they're not going to get it from the Latino vote. They're not going to get their 70%. They're going to be lucky if they get 55. They're not going to get 85% of the black male vote, I don't think. I think they're going to get 80. Yeah. And so, and they're not going to get 50-50, I think, in suburban independent voters. So um, the, it's, it, it's all going to add up to them. And I, I think, as I said before to you, when once you have these swing elections, they break very quickly and they break very abruptly and they and they break very dramatically. So you can go from 20 races all even, right? But the same criteria apply to each one. So when one starts to flip, then the flip, 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 because people come to collective, even though they're individuals, collectively, you can predict what they're thinking. It's kind of like Trump in 2016. He won Michigan by a few votes. He won Wisconsin by a few votes. He won Pennsylvania by a few votes. He, but the same, the same factors were in each of those states. And people were the same, even given regional differences. And once they made up their mind that Hillary Clinton was intolerable and they were going to take their chance on Trump, that mindset or that evolutionary thought was replicated in mass. And that's what's happening, that a lot of people throughout the country are saying, you know, this time around, I'm sick of being lied to about gasoline prices, about inflation, about in crime, and about the border. And those are the four big issues. Yeah. So I wanted then to turn to another thing that concerns our young adults, and that is the affirmative action case that will come before the Supreme Court. I think they're splitting it into two, one against Harvard and one against the University of North Carolina. And they're both about the violation of the equal protection principle. I believe that they're going to both be tried on that. Um, And the consideration of race in college admissions criteria. So the cases are being brought that race shouldn't be considered in criteria. And um, both Harvard and North Carolina are trying to, are going to be on the side of defending it for affirmative action. Uh, What do you expect to happen with this? I think they're going to reverse it, not just because of a couple of things. John Roberts was always, let's go by precedent. Let's not make waves. Let's try to bring it together. And after what we saw about leaking Supreme Court memoranda with impunity or swarming the home of Brett Kavanaugh or an assassin turning up or left-wing rhetoric in the Senate about packing the court or et cetera, et cetera, or teaching Clarence Thomas or dragging his wife before the January. I think they understand now. You just do what you got to do. Don't yeah. worry about it because they're going to hate you no matter what. And so they're going to vote the principles of the Constitution. And I mean, it's a pretty standard idea that you don't discriminate on the basis of skin color or national origins or ethnic fides. So it was always that that was always true. And then that's one uh, consideration. The second is affirmative action was envisioned to address the historical black-white binary when the population was about 88% white, about 10% black, and 2% identifying as other. And what's happened in that 60 years, and think of that, I mean, we're getting close to 60 years of it. And we were told by all the justices at various times and various iterations of these decisions that this was a temporary fix. And it turned out to be long-lasting. And so now what they see is 
a Spanish uh, professor with blue eyes and blonde hair from Madrid, who's a, his kids, um, they're eligible for affirmative action. The multi-practice orthodontist from South Korea, immigrant, who's making $5 million a year in his franchises, his kids are eligible in theory to put some places. Should LeBron have children, the Obama children, they're eligible. So it has nothing to do with class and it doesn't really have anything to do with race in the sense that uh, it just means that you're not white, except with the exception of Asians that you can discriminate against, apparently. And that doesn't make sense, does it? No, so it sure doesn't. You let people who are very wealthy and privileged that happen to be non-white, 30% of the population could be those people in theory, and you give them special preferences. But you don't quite. You say, well, we want you to be successful, and you can't be successful unless we let you into Stanford or Harvard or Michigan or Ohio because you're not white. But these other people who are Asian from Vietnam or from India, and they're very diverse, believe me, in China, Japan, but they are too successful. So the racism that held you back as a Latino is, is not holding the Asians back. And so we're going to punish them because they're overrepresented. In our infinite wisdom, we're going to reward you because you're underrepresented. That's a hard sell to, to make. Because if you're a racist country and somebody's very dark from the Philippines and somebody's lily white from Portugal or from Mexico City, what's the criteria that you use? Historical discrimination? Uh, we put, you know, Japanese in camps. We had, uh, Leland Stanford had Chinese press gangs working on the railroad. Is that what we do? What what is what discrimination has the United States shown somebody who's crossing the border today? Can you tell me he's crossing the border today? He's he's twelve. Is he eligible for affirmative action? Yes. Will he? Re he's not going to meet any more discrimination in the United States than he did in Mexico. In fact, he'll he'll meet a lot less as an indigenous person. And then we have the other problem, Sammy, and that is. So you're on campus and you're an affirmative action grantee, and this has been going on for 60 years. And the fact of the matter is that most, not all, but the majority of people who are admitted to campuses, as we've learned now in the last 30 years of data, are not as competitive as the people who aren't. It has nothing to do with race. If you're very, very dark skinned and, and you're from Mumbai, and uh, you're very, very light-skinned, but you're a qualified minority that got in on, on affirmative action while the person from Mumbai did it on test scores. And he's going to do better in school, just not just because he's got that record. And so what happens is the people on affirmative action then have to that, – that's not the end of it. That was what we were told. Once you let people into the university that have been historically discriminated and you open the door – then beautiful things happen. You let sunlight in and the room blooms. But it's the beginning. Because then when you lead, how about law school? How about medical school? Okay, you get into law school. medical. How about the uh, medical boards? Or how about the bar? And then how about the firm? So it goes on and on and on and on. And what you end up then doing is with the ridiculousness of it, as I said before. 
you end up with Elizabeth Warren, you end up with Rachel Dozel, you'll end up with Ward Churchill, you end up with Sean King's on the one hand, or you end up with Barack Obama or Oprah, or you end up with Meghan Markle. And so there are so many contradictions. I think the whole oh, the Supreme Court is going to say this is a carcass that has to be thrown out because it's contrary to the idea of the constitutional and equality of under the law. It's racist. It doesn't work. And it may have had a role in the 60s and 70s, but that role has now passed. And uh, if people really, really want to have equality, not equity, but equality of opportunity to, and do well in the society, then when they throw it out, and I hope they do, then everybody, each according to their station, should mentor people. You should see the African-American community say, you know what we need right now? We need private schools, uniforms, mandatory Latin, SAT camps in the summer, and we're going to show everybody that we will be like the Asian community and outcompete the majority on our own merits. And then you'll see the world blossom with Shelby Steeles and Tom Sowell. And that can happen. But uh, it, what I fear is that I know the academic mind very well after spending basically a half century in it. And you know what they're going to do. They're going to do just what they do here in California with 209. And then it was affirmed again with the repeal, I guess it was of Prop 16. And you know what they're going to do. Because these people do not believe in the rule of law. If the university development, the university affirmative action, the university admittance, the, the university administration, they're going to find ways to undermine the Supreme Court ruling, and they'll be they'll have to go to court to force it. By that I means they'll say, we did not discriminate against Asians. Now we have a new criteria that we don't really care about violin playing, or we really don't care about uh, being a Boy Scout, or we don't care about this. They'll find a way to distort it. But they have to be watched because they're not principled people because they're going to try. They don't They see the left wing mind believes, especially the left wing academic mind, is that they're so morally superior that they'll always say that other people are not following the law. And then they won't follow the law if they find it doesn't satisfy their their agendas. No. And they also will make up all sorts of things to get around um, the Supreme Court's ruling. Because once you start inventing criteria or criteria for getting admissions into these colleges and universities, you, you know can, what they're going to do. You can put, you know, um, leadership, community service. Community service was the big yeah. one. I was involved in my former job as a professor in the Cal State system with a very, very very wonderful honors program and it was endowed by a wonderful family local family and it worked amazingly well and it, it did have an overrepresentation, probably just on the demographic of white and asians because it was entirely meritocratic and it allowed people to go to this this cal state campus and get computer free computers free internet even free tickets, free parking, free dorms. It was wonderful. And it, it was based on merit. That was the intent of the donor. And we had people in that program that could have gone to, they were literally turning down Berkeley and everywhere to go to CSU because it was all paid for and they were an elite. And you know what happened. People complained. They said it was racist. It was discriminatory. And so then I started getting calls from people who didn't know me. And they said, Professor Hansen, you teach in this program? I said, I was one of the first of the four teachers. And they said, my son has a 4.4 4 
and he has a 770 on the verbal and a 740 on the math. He did not get in. And so I would go talk to the director. I said, I want to see the admissions. Oh, you can't see. I said, I want to see them. And I would look at all the names and I'd look at the scores and I would call the person back. And this happened three or four times. I said, your child was about 15 or 16 and we took 50 this year and your child is ranked 80. And they said, how could that be if you said they're, they're 16 in terms of GPA and SAT? And I said, because of quote unquote community service. And they would say things like, well, he was an international Rotary fellow, or he organized a cleanup crew at the local park, or he tutored kids that were disabled. Didn't matter. Community service nope. became the mechanism that the university used to discriminate. It was terrible. And I put up with that for three years. And then I said, not this non, non hic porcus, not this pig. Can't do it anymore. Can't I, lie to can't lie to parents, can't lie to students. I and, expect them to do that after this ruling if they do come down on the side of the end to affirmative action or that it is illegal. It's very strange how they're just so blatant and so confident and so cocky about discriminating against Asians. It's it's especially Punjabis. I don't understand it. Yeah. I mean, we have this immigrant community. As one of my Punjabi friends said, Victor, I'm darker than anybody in the black community, uh, and especially the Latino community, and yet I'm discriminated against because I'm privileged. And yeah. I said, it's not because of skin color, it's because you're too successful. Well, why am I too successful? I said, because you put a an emphasis on education and family cohesion and excellence, and that results in students that do very well in college. And so in yeah. our way, in our multiracial society, we have proportional representation in all of these different fields, except they're always repertory. So as I said, if the National Hockey League is 78% white, then it's got to have more blacks and Hispanics. If the NBA is 76% African-American, that's fine. That's perfect because of historical discrimination. So we, yeah. we, being the platonic guardians, know how and to whom and why we discriminate. That's what that's their premise. Yeah, that is. And it's kind of very annoying. Well, let's go ahead and take another break and then come back. And I know that we've talked about Latino voters, but um, this time we have the Democrats critiquing themselves on why they're failing with Latino voters. So let's take a break and come right back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, 
Father Brown and Death in Paradise, plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. We're back, and Victor, uh, I was looking at, and this is from MSNBC because they were critiquing themselves, and they said that in Florida, the the study or the article was really based on things going on in Florida, but it's a good test case, that um, Latino voters were going over to the Republican ticket, and the article was sort of you know, self-flagellating, saying the Democrats um, are failing. And the Democratic Party chair in Florida, Manny Diaz, said that they're not the reason for it is they're not focusing on economic issues, which is what concerns the Latino community. And they're on these, quote, useless culture wars. And the political writer, the, the MSN, in, MSNBC writer, um, couldn't couldn't sit with that. He wanted to say that, in fact, the Democrats have it focused on economic issues and they have been avoiding useless cultural issues and uh, cultural wars, sorry. And so it was kind of an interesting article in that the the Latino, uh, the, the guy that's sort of the overseer of the Latino community in Florida was saying, the Latinos don't like these useless cultural wars. They need to be addressed. Economic issues need yeah. to be addressed. Well, we know, first of all, Hispanic or Latino, whatever we term we use, that's like using the term white around 1880. And if you said to an Irishman or a Italian or a Greek, you're or an Armenian immigrant, you're all the same, they would all argue with you. But they felt that their ethnic affiliation was more important. So what I'm getting at is if you're Guatemalan, you have nothing in common with a Cuban. Or if you're an Argentinian, you're not necessarily have anything in common with a Oaxacan except the same language. That's that's like me saying, Oh, you're Swedish American. You if a guy comes from Sweden, you guys are really on the same page. No, we're not. I don't know anything about them. So the Latino thing is a is a construct that was created during the 60s. There are Mexican-Americans, there are Cuban-Americans, but the idea that they're a monolithic voting block is just ridiculous. And number two, it may not be ridiculous if the Democrats keep going where they are because they may be able to, not that they're going to collectively identify as anti-democratic, but that will be the de facto result if they continue. And what do I mean by continue? I mean, when they start talking about one of their main issues is Joe Biden talking to a man in drag who says he's a woman and the transgender issue is the great civil rights issue of our time. And we end up that female sports are absolutely destroyed or we, we keep talking to a Catholic population. And that is something that's in common besides their language, the religion. Not that there's not a lot of Protestant Hispanics, but. Boy, you tell people that abortion is one of the most important things in the world, and they're a devout Catholic and an Orthodox Catholic, they have to overlook that to vote for you. That doesn't encourage them to vote for you. 
And so what, and then when you don't talk about these bread and butter issues, you don't talk about the price of gas or you lie to people and say that gas was $5 a gallon when Joe Biden came into office when it was what, two thirty nine, or you lie about inflation's transitory. That means you don't care. And then the, the, the Latino Hispanic voter, just like any other voter says, why are they lying to me? I know why they're lying to me because it doesn't matter to them. I don't matter to them because they are an elite. They're a Nancy Pelosi. They're a Chuck Schumer. They're a Bill Gates. They're a Mark Zuckerberg. They're a LeBron. They're the Obama. They don't care, this party of the rich. And so that that finally filters down to the voters. And they didn't talk this entire campaign. They talked about three issues. And only three. They talked about abortion, 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 abortion. And they talked about Trump, 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 and global warming, global warming, global climate change, etc. They would not talk about inflation. They would not talk about the border. They would not talk about Afghanistan. They would not talk about the energy. They would not talk about inflation. And so now all of a sudden, from what this article you're citing, and there's thousands of them, they think in the last eight days, they're going to completely talk, they're going to send Obama, they're going to send Biden, and they're going to talk about don't be fooled. And they're going to take away, you know what they're going to say, they're going to take away your social security. Well, let's worry about that later until I want to fill up gas and be able to buy hamburger first. And believe me, it doesn't work. I keep saying this, it doesn't work when the Obamas step, you know, they step out of one of their four states. Like counting their Chicago little mini mansions in state, I suppose, and then start lecturing people how liber- illiberal they are. People are sick of that. Ditto Hillary, too. Yeah, and it's I always find it a very strange thing that Obama really doesn't do anything until about the last week or two of a campaign season, and then all of a sudden he's out there. And I, I don't think that's a very fa- effective strategy if he's hoping Remember to be what he helpful said. at all. Remember yeah. what he said when he was president? It was a it was a sympathetic interviewer said, What's your greatest liability, Mr. President? He said, I'm lazy. He said it. If anybody else said it, they would say it was racist. But he is lazy. He always was. And he doesn't like to work. He when he was a senator, he did nothing. And uh he didn't out campaign people. So he's he doesn't want to go out there and barnstorm the country. Why should he? He's making fifty million dollars a year. He's got all these, his, he, as I said with Jack, he, he's a politician that always wanted to be a celebrity and he likes the idea of infatuation and crowds, but he doesn't want to work for them. He doesn't want to go out there. He's not going to, when he was a law student at law review, he was famous for the, the least productive Harvard law review editor in history. When he was a professor of law at the university of Chicago, he was notorious for being lazy. He was given a very generous fellowship to write his book on contract law. Instead, he wrote a book about himself. He doesn't do things that require work. And he's been given everything in his life has been handed to him, handed to him. He grew up as an upper middle class grandson of a bank person who became a president. And this idea that he just, you know, wow, we're going to lose. Hmm, that might reflect bad on my legacy. But, you know, I didn't want to get in there because Biden is kind of stealing my thunder. 
by being more left-wing than I was. But, you know, this will be bad for us. So maybe the last week I'll kind of go to a couple things and call Herschel Walker a name or two or say John Fetterman is the greatest thing since sliced bread or something like that. And then I'll go back and dream up another, you know, write some, scrawl some stuff on a notepad about a new Netflix movie to make my 50 million bucks. Yeah, and we won't hear for him for another 50 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> no, we won't. Not unless... They get in bad shape, and Joe Biden is not able to run, and they get in the back room, and there's a lot of smoke, and they and they say, we cannot, is it Kamala or Kamala? I don't know which one. It changes every week. Miss Harris, it will be a disaster, so they're going to draft who? Michelle Obama. Mm. And then they'll come out of the woodwork again. Yeah, perhaps. We'll see if that happens. Well, speaking of the elections and what might potentially happen after it, I was wondering what you thought on when the Republicans take office, will the woke companies face some resistance from them? And I'm thinking of the sort like Ron DeSantis, who took the self-governing district away from Disney World, or the 19 attorney generals in the states that are calling for BlackRock to justify its ESG policies. So do we? Do you think we'll see more of those things? If the Republicans take the House and the Senate, they will run investigations. They will look at antitrust and anti-monopoly legislation. But more importantly, a lot of these corporations, they act like they're woke or they act like they're consider they're conservative, but they have no ideology. They just simply go with where the perceived power is. And trust me, if they take the House and the Senate, they will go tack back to the center. And if a Republican wins with a House and Senate, in two more years, then they will stop the woke stuff. It also depends on the Republicans, whether they're going to go back to Mitt Romney, Marcus of Queensbury rules. But if they get some tough guys at the head of these investigative committees and they start looking at Hunter Biden and they start looking at the Biden corruption syndicate, and if they start looking at monopolies and antitrust, they revisit Anthony Fauci and Collins and they get really proactive these corporations will really not try to be so woke. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always wonder how much their clients can affect, for example, the PayPal um, accident, as they called it, of saying that they were going to charge 2500 for misinformation um, from their clients. And then well, you know, I, they, I got some, to... they got some uh, blowback from that. They but did. I, don't and know. I think with Jack earlier this week we said that I said I used the metaphor that they were the mad scientists and were the lab rats. But <laughs> the point I was trying to make is they never can be candid with the electorate. It always has to be based on ruse. If Joe Biden had have said in 2020, not that I'm going to unite us, not that I'm going to bring us together, not that I'm old Joe Biden from Grant, but he said, you know what? These people are semi-fascist. They live in the shadow of lies. And here's what I'm going to do. Not just talk about climate change. I'm going to get rid of I'm going to shut down that damn Anwar. I am going to be famous for having the fewest leases. I'm going to get gas up to $5 a gallon. I'm going to open that border like you won't believe. That's what he planned to do. 
But if he had said that to people, they wouldn't have voted for him. No, of well, course And that's not. because they're ultimately we're talking about an agenda that's contrary to human nature, to natural law. Natural law says that people know that civilization is innate. It's innate and imprinted on our souls when we're born. To basically quote Plato, that society doesn't work if you walk in and, and steal stuff and walk out. I just got back today again from Home Depot. And my local Home Depot, the automatic checkouts that have lines, you know, the ones you serve yourself on the little computers with your scanners, it closes down arbitrarily. Wow. I mean, you go in there and sometimes it just closed down or the garden section has a wide open you walk out. It's closed down. Mm -hmm. So I asked one of the clerks. She didn't want to tell me. And finally, she said, well, we have a big problem with shoplifting. And so what they do is apparently they shut down sections at odd times so that the professional shoplifters don't know when they can just walk out. In other words, they'll have to go through a security and actual checkout where there's very few checkouts. That doesn't work. That won't work. A society won't work if people steal without consequences, contrary to what Nicole Hannah-Jones said during the 2020 riots when she said, oh, stealing stuff is no big deal. It's not a crime. So there, the idea of no bail or if you steal $950, there's no real consequences or defund the police or empty the prisons. There's no need for a border. These are contrary to what we're born with, and they know it. Everybody knows that if you have male genitalia and you went through puberty as a male and you see this swimmer with these big shoulders and little hips and big muscularity and he has male genitalia and you put him in a pool with women, that's not natural and it's not fair to the women. No, and, not at all. And, then, yeah. and he's going to destroy women's sports. Or if you put him on a volleyball court with that superior strength he's going to spike it down some poor woman's throat and hurt yeah. her yeah. and that's what we're doing right now and people know that it's not contrary to they know that you can argue maybe about an abortion and i don't i'm, I'm against it but that's because i'm a male and i don't go through the real consequences i understand that but if you're a woman in the first three or four weeks and you're not noticeably pregnant, the left can make an argument that I'm not getting into where I whether I disagree with it, but they will make an argument that can sell that the woman has a right to what they would call miss a period or then abort that or whatever. I don't think it's right, but it's contrary to law to abort a fetus. It is a survivable human being, and people know that. And so one yeah. of the reasons when you asked earlier about the abortion, as long as the Republicans were sort of back in their 2010 or 2012 mode where they were allowed to be demagogued as, you know, they want, they were, every woman who was raped or incest had to have a baby. There was a few weirdos that got trapped in that, that dialogue. But once they turned that around and said, no, you want to abort people on the, the day that that birth would occur, people knew they were imprinted at birth that that was wrong. Yeah. They didn't do that. Dr. Gosnell was a monster, and everybody knew that. So they have an agenda that is contrary to, to, to facts, to nature. They understand, People understand that. Yeah, they sure do. Well, Victor, let's go ahead and take our last break, and then we'll come back. And I thought maybe we could talk about a film that I know that you like, 
and this is a surprise yeah it's a surprise and um i think you'll like it though um but we'll come right back after these messages Welcome back. I would like to remind everybody that Victor's work is available at victorhansen.com. The website's called The Blade of Perseus, and you can get a monthly subscription for $5 and a annual subscription for $50. So it's an excellent deal. Please come join us at The Blade of Perseus. That's victorhansen.com. And also Victor is available or um, interacts on social media at Hansen's Morning Cup on Facebook, VD Hansen at Twitter. And then we also have an account on Getter and MeWe. Um, All right. So Victor, it is the 50th anniversary year of The Godfather. And I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about what you think made this movie so great. Uh, Let's think about that. Well, the first thing was that to have a movie, you have to have good actors. And so when you put Robert De Niro and Godfather 2 or Al Pacino, or you put Marlon Brando in the first one, you've got the best actors there were at the time. So they were brilliant. And then the second thing is you have to have characters and the characters can't be one dimensional. And so this saga shows the odyssey of Michael Corleone. And he starts out as an idealistic war hero that doesn't want any part of the family. And then he gets drawn in and he realizes that he has a higher loyalty to his family when his father shot he gets further and further in, and then he realizes that he has skill sets that are beyond the other family members, and he alone can save the family. And then he gets he crosses a line, and he becomes an evil an evil person. But there are elements of his. It's a tragedy that he didn't want to do this. That's yeah. a that's always a, a complex character. Or you look at the same thing with the Marlon Brando, Don Corleone. He has some admirable traits, but all in the context of violence and murder, killing people. So he's a complex, ambiguous character in some ways. Or you look at Fredo, and he's a tragic character. Something's wrong with him. He's he's inept. He's not treated well. But if he were treated well, he'd destroy the family. So anytime you have a movie with these paradoxes or complexities that don't make it predictable, and even James Khan, you know, I mean, he's the dynamic person, but you start to see why he gets shot and why he gets, he's impulsive and you can't have a person like that running the family. And so that's, you have good actors, you have good, then you have to have a good plot. And the plot in Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 is how this family that overcomes all of these internal and external challenges and wins in the end but in the process of winning it loses what soul it had and yet and so that goes on that goes on for i I don't want to get into three i thought three godfather three was better than uh than people said but so you had a good plot you had good characters you had good actors and then you have to good have to have dramatic scenes you know so in the first one when you have the horse head and the the arrogant 
Hollywood producer. That I think that was a caricature. I'm just because I didn't know you were going to ask this, so I'm going off the top of my head. But it was c- kind of an allegory, if not an exact borrowing of Frank Sinatra and from here to eternity that re- revived his career. And there were, you know, there was the Gambino family or one of the families supposedly pressured him to get that job. But that was brilliant when the guy thought he was going to really humiliate Robert Duvall. And I should say of all the characters, Robert Duvall, Robert Duvall was one of the best actors of all of them. And and when he very politely said, we, I want to get this clear. This is what you're doing. And then he wakes up with his thoroughbred horse in his bed. And then we had the other scene with the cocky uh, Southern Senator or the Nevada. And you're not going to come out here, you Italians, and tell me what to do. And they stage that where he wakes up with a dead woman. Mm-hmm. And, that, and they they have him in his pocket. So all of these are classical Greek tragedies. I mean, in the sense of arrogance, earns nemesis leads to disaster and so there's good scenes in those the screenwriting is really well the dialogue is really i mean think about so many famous phrases i'm going to offer him <laughs> he can't, i'm going to give him an offer he can't refuse, can't refuse. <laughs> so they uh, this is, they... or my favorite was godfather too this is the business we chose <laughs> so that was that Meyer, the, you know meyer yeah. landscape yeah but it also had a great anti-hero in Fredo, I think. I mean, it, great. I don't know. He's an anti-hero, but he, you know, he he just kind of took the show in many ways in all of his mealing really out measly. You know. He went from being the protected dunce to that famous scene in Godfather 2 when they're in Cuba and they're in that awful risque scene where they're showing this fornication and live and he says johnny what's his name was here and he gave it away because he had said to michael that he never met him met him before yeah and that was the end of it because then he was revealed as one of the snitches that who's inadvertently was responsible for michael almost getting killed and then they and then they're going to kill him as soon as his mother dies but that was that godfather too was it was kind of a caricature of of us in cuba <laughs> when they're that scene where they're passing the gold phone around and IT&T and all of these corporations are propping up the Batista government and then he assures everybody everything's okay and then he says I'm I just have to tell you that I don't think things are going to work tonight I'll see you wouldn't want to be a, that kind yeah. of thing <laughs> and then of course uh, Meyer Lansky Lee Strasberg character my god he was a great actor and yeah, you always, always threatening to have a heart attack any moment, and then finding Michael. So he's been threatening that forever. And they have to. <laughs> you you know you always talk a lot about directors as well, and I was wondering what you thought of Francis Ford Coppola. Well, I mean, he is one of those. He's not a reliable director, in the mm-hmm. sense that he didn't. He's not a you know I don't know how to say it, George Stevens or. John Ford, that everything he, he turned out was excellent. But those are very impossible. But when he was good, I mean, uh, when he was good, you couldn't be better. I mean, think about it. He had three God, two Godfather movies that were great. Didn't he do um, Dracula? I think he did. Bram Stoker's Dracula. That was really good. And there's some other ones I remember. I didn't like the Cotton Club so much, but it was pretty good. And when we think, oh, you know, the 
what do you call it? Apocalypse. Did he do Apocalypse Now, right? Yeah, he did Apocalypse Now. And that sure was that, yeah. that was uh that was amazing, you know. That was smell of napalm <laughs> in the morning. So that was a brilliant movie. And then he Rumblefish was kind of funny. And then he did Peggy Sue, and I'm trying to think what and he did that kind of disaster one from the heart and yeah. the rainmaker and I don't know. He he did so the he, conversation. I didn't realize that he had I didn't done know that. he did that. that. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. Finian's Rainbow was a disaster. Uh, so he he but all in all, when you put his oeuvre is the French, I guess, or we say if we're sophisticates, <laughs> when you look at Dracula and you look at Godfather one and two, you look at Peggy Sue was funny. You look at Apocalypse Now; he's pretty damn good, and oh, yeah. he's up there. I have, you know, I'm kind of prejudice toward in the modern word um the australian directors they were really good peter weir mm -hmm. he didn't do a lot but my god george miller with the road <laughs> road uh you know road warrior series i think george miller did those and then uh those gosh. movies put um Mad Max movies. Yeah, the Mad Max movies. They put Mel Gibson on the map, on the movie map, right? I mean, that, those were his first yeah, movies. Yeah, they did. And when you think of um, Peter Weir, oh my God, live, the year of uh, Living Dangerously, that last wave. Yeah. And then there was, uh, what was that guy's name, Noyce? He did that uh, Clear and Present Danger. I didn't like the salt that great. But uh, there was... Bruce Brett's, Brett, is it Burrisford? He did a lot of really good ones. Um, I'm trying to remember Tender Mercies and uh, that one that he did, that the black robe about the French missionaries, remember, in North America? Mm, yeah, that was that, a brilliant That movie. was really violent, um, but that was really, I don't know, brilliant. My favorite. Oh, speaking of Peter Weir, he did Master and Commander. Yes, he that did. That was like a really... He, you know, he didn't do a lot of movies of, of those great directors from Australia. He didn't do a lot, but the ones he did were really good. I, I mentioned Bruce Beresford because he did one of my favorite movies of all time, Breaker Moran. I thought that was just... God, it was good. And uh, that was, you know, that was based on a true story, the Boer War. It was really tragic. And... Uh, so anyway, there's something about the Australian directors in the late 20th century. They were they were kind of like the Americans coming out of right on the eve and coming after World War II. You know, they were just when you see movies like Creative, The Best Years of Our Lives, or Shane, or The Searchers, or all of those fantastic um movies that you know that happened one night or all of them they were just brilliant that was a brilliant period of american films yeah yeah well i, I know that coppola wasn't going to take the godfather he didn't really like the novel very much and yet he went in for it nonetheless i think he got talked into it because he needed the money <laughs> really and yeah it's so hard it's to know i mean there was there were his competitors, if you think about them, Martin Scorsese, um, 
I like Coppola movies better than Corsese movies, but I, and then Steven Spielberg, I'm not a big, I mean, I, he, not a big fan of him. Quentin Tarantino got kind of tiresome, but <laughs> I know you like this one. One of my favorite movies is uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> that oh, final scene. When, it, yeah, he, that was, I mean, gosh, when that final violent scene with, Leonardo DiCaprio takes a fire extinguisher. You know what they always say about Hitchcock? He made it okay to put a violent scene on the movie screen, but I think Quentin Tarantino made it okay to laugh while you're watching one happening. I don't know. It's an absolutely insane movie, but since he's retelling what, um, oh, those Helter Skelter people did. <laughs> and hes they've made a mistake and they got to the wrong house. I mean, everything just falls out at that point and it gets pretty hilarious. I know they make hilarious. fun of Frank Capra, but if you think about it, I watched it the other night, not too long ago this year. It's a wonderful life. The music, it's just, it's just a wonderful movie. It wasn't considered that at the time, but it was, it was a brilliant movie. And uh, I don't know if it ever really, I mean, it, 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 it people think it's corny and all that, but the the acting is great in that movie. Thomas Mitchell is great. Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed. It's just something about that. When you yeah. put all those directors, you know, with John Ford, Stagecoach, How Green Was My... I'm not talking about his westerns. How Green Was My Valley. And Mr. Is it Young Mr. Lincoln? Grapes of Wrath. And then you end up with that whole western uh, work and you end with Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. God, what a brilliant movie that was. And I know this guy mentioned Corsorsi, but, you know, but the best movie I thought he made was uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. It was kind of a weird movie. Steven Spielberg was, I don't know what. You mentioned Alfred Hitchcock. I know that's probably one of your favorite movies. <laughs> one of my New favorite directors. directors yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't like Psycho that much, but... Uh, I like Vertigo a lot. That was a really good movie. And Vertigo. Marnie was really good. That had Sean Connery in it. Rope was crazy. Yeah, I mean, it was. it was good. It was good, though. And, and so, uh, uh, Rear, Rear Window is my favorite, I think. That's really a brilliant. It's hard to know with all these, uh, you know, when you look at all of these, who these, you know, you try to compare these real. I mean, how, what would you put, what was the British guy's name? Dave, David Lean, you know what I mean? Gosh, who who could produce within eight or nine years? The Bridge on the River Kwai, Dr. Zhivago, Lawrence of Arabia. My God, those are the three best epic movies of all time in some ways. Yeah. I know he had flops. I remember I, I liked Ryan's Daughter, but it was a flop. But my God, that guy was a genius. Yeah. And... Um, it's so I'm, I'm I'm getting into this habit that probably listeners get sick of of being nostalgic for prior generations, and they're saying, "Well, that's just because you know you're always trashing the present generation, and you have this nostalgia." No, I try to use criteria of, of characterization and and acting ability, and not that there's not some great new actors, actor, but my gosh, I'm a big fan of George Stevens. He was really he introduced a lot of great actors. I think he was the one that brought us Jack Palance. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, think about that. My gosh. And then he did uh, 
Did you ever see that movie he did more than merrier about the housing crisis? That was really funny. And it was No, I have to say I haven't seen that movie. Yeah, he he had some I don't know. I think if you look and I love that movie, you know, what was the name of it? Um I remember Mama or is that what it was? And uh gosh and you think of all those great, and he, I, I don't even know the movies the guy made in the thirties. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know that I like that woman of the year. With, that was one Tracy movie. I liked with Catherine Hepburn and uh, maybe it was, a, I'm thinking of what was the name of it? Maybe it was the more the merrier. He did the place in the sun, you know, that theater Dreiser version of America of his uh, novel, America, the uh, American tragedy. Yeah. And those two great movies, Shane, and I think it was, you know, Giant went on long, but it was a good movie, too. But Yeah, that was a very good movie. I, always, yeah. I enjoyed that. So it was funny to watch Liz Taylor, try, them try to make Liz Taylor look old towards the end of the movie. Gosh. <laughs> Didn't do well as an <laughs> I'm sorry, pre- I'm sorry, contemporary actresses, but when you look at Liz Taylor on film when she was between <laughs> 18 and 34, I just don't think you're ever going to match that figure, looks, charisma, <laughs> or maybe the same to a lesser degree, but also true of uh, Natalie Wood was very beautiful. Yeah. Stunning. So was Hedy Lamar, Dorothy Lamar. Well, Ava, we could Ava say Ava the Gardner. same thing. We could say the same thing for men. You're just never going to be able to replace Burt Lancaster. <laughs> He was a he was a circus act, actor, you know. I mean, he, I mean, a sick a gymnast. What a great body! <laughs> yeah, he was. But look at that. I mean, look who he had to compete with. He had to compete with Henry Fonda, Gregory Peck, Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne. <laughs> Thing about John Wayne was that when he was bad, he was really bad as an actor. But man, when he you gave him the perfect role that brought out the dark side in him. And then there, there was two great movies. Anything that didn't bring out the dark side, he didn't do well. But you put him in Red River <laughs> or The Searchers, and it was absolutely brilliant, those those shows. A little yeah. bit, to, to a lesser extent, Stagecoach. Red River, he was brilliant. Okay, okay, Victor. We are going to have to call this quits today because we're at the end of our show. I didn't prep for this, so, so maybe I, I know a lot of listeners saying you got the director's name wrong or something. Yeah, we probably did, but otherwise, very good. Thank you so much for all of your words of wisdom today on everything on our youth and the lawsuits that are coming up in the um, Supreme Court. We'll look forward to them. So thank you very much, and thank you to our listeners. Yes. And I, I will finish, but I have a soft spot for a very strange actor. Christopher Walken, uh, Jack Palance, <laughs> Jurgen Prochnano, those type of actors. Uh, I like Jurgen Prochnano. Yeah, he, he's good. And Gary Oldman is another one. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Thank All you, right. everybody. Goodbye. Bye. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hansen, and we're signing off. <laughs>